Hello, assalamu alaikum. This is the very first episode of Sartorial Splendor. My name is Corey, and my co-host John is with me. Hi, everybody. And we're super excited to be here on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's been a good, a good yeah, week. We are, we are really excited to kick this off. Um, in case you haven't read our articles on thefandamentalist.com, uh, we kind of have very specific niche interests. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely right. Uh, that's a diplomatic way of putting it. But I think they fall under the term sartorial, which is why we're calling this podcast Sartorial Splendor. And uh, really quickly, I'm just going to kick this off by defining what the dictionary says it is. So sartorial mm-hmm. means relating to tailoring, clothes, or style of dress. And... I mean, that's nice, but for me, I think what sartorial really is, it's like all of those little intangible things that come together to make you feel like you are putting out your best face forward to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely I definitely see that. I, For my interpretation of sartorial, it is based on what I think of and associate with the idea of tailoring or being a tailor, which is collecting um, not only materials and resources that allow you to create a specific look or style for your own person, but also paying attention to craft and value and opening yourself up to options of honing your own skills as somebody who wants to express themselves one way or to um, even curate uh, a a list or a collection of, of valuable things to you that help you become somebody or a version of yourself, present a version of yourself that matches exactly what you value in yourself. Yeah, so it's like, to me, it's all those little intangibles that come together from, like, how your clothes fit, how you look, you know, what you're wearing, either be, like, fragrance or, you know, watches or jewelry, or even if you, you know, you carry a pin, that type of thing. That really makes you feel like I've got my ultimate mode armor. Like this is the most mm-hmm. ultimate version of myself that I'm presenting to the world. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So I do want to kind of make a little tradition here. Um, John and I are also just fragrant fanatics. And I do kind of <laughs> want to right. make a tradition of just like at the beginning of every episode, just kind of drop what we're wearing because it changes quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> like every 15 minutes. Uh, Yeah, quite literally for me today, um, I got cleaned up and I was like, I'm going to go wear Sartorial from Penhaligans. And then I got some new sample stuff in the mail, completely forgot I'd already sprayed something on. And now I basically smell like Christmas aftershave. (laughs) Nice. So um, I'm currently, go ahead. Yeah, like I said, I'm wearing Sartorial from Penhaligans, but I got a bunch of oils in today from the Land of Oz. Like A A H S, mm-hmm. so I'm like, oh, let me put on the fruity pebbles and the bourbon tobacco, and <laughs> yeah, I smell really interesting right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the cross pollination of the of the samples is very Layering very common <laughs> common phenomenon uh, for any fragrance nerd. Uh, right now, I'm actually not dealing with any of that because. After four or five days of extreme testing, I put on a sample I haven't put on in a long time, which is Grand Soir by MFK. And for me, I like 
amber in somber fumes, but in the more bare bones amber masterpieces like um, Istoros de Parfums, Amber 114, and uh, Amber Sultan by Serge Lutans, uh, those tend to be a little rougher and almost um, like a little more powdery and, and yeah, rough is the right word. A little more powdery and rough for me. So Grand Soir, vanilla, amber, stripped down, very smooth. Uh, suits me really well, and I'm excited about it. Oh, nice. I would like to say they suit me really well, but um, like I said, I smell like shaving cream and like Christmas threw up everywhere, so <laughs> I am an experience right now. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, you know how it is. You get so excited when you get samples in. Like, everything else goes out the window. And it's like, I got to pick one and try it out right away. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, at least that's how it is, that's how it is for me. Like, sample day, when I get new samples in, I'm just like, I know I'm. you're not supposed to smell all of them. Because you're going to go, you're, you're just going to have so much olfactory fatigue. And you're going to go mm-hmm. anosmic. But I'm like, whatever. I'm an adult, and I'm going to be stupid if I want to, and I just, like, smell all of them, and then I can't smell anything, and my nose is running for the rest of the night. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it's always a contest of trying to find real estate on your arm that you haven't used yet. I don't even bother with that. I'm just, like, opening all of them up and just, like, snorting them at this point, just trying to, like, oh, I want to get initial thoughts on what I'm excited for and what I'm dreading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And like, I usually I, go straight to skin. And I do want to say is like, maybe this is a good intro topic since it's our first episode. When you're sampling, if you have those little dabber vials, you cannot stick it in there and get just like a little bit on the dabber and flick it on your wrist and have that be like what you base a review off of. I'm sorry, you can't right. do that. Yeah, you can't. You um, gotta dump like half of that thing on your wrists and let it sit, and that's what you need to be doing. Like you gotta get a good, healthy application on there. Yeah, for me, I'm always terrified because, as you said, like the the dabber for me in those in those little vials is worthless, and you have to go ahead and and I always I know this can't be 100 percent good because the your skin the oils on your skin are gonna somehow in small amounts get into your vial or whatever but i, I just go for it invert it on yeah some that's part about skin, what i like do move until around. I see the liquid just kind of coat my wrists a little bit <laughs> yeah that's like, when it starts shining that's when you know you're done <laughs> yeah it's like you've got to put a good application on there because that's i think one of my biggest pet peeves of other people who review samples of they get that little dabber vial and then they just kind of put it on there and then they're like well the projection and silage and longevity for this aren't that good and i'm like (laughs) well if you actually put any on yeah i mean every once in a while you know like if you get the vial and you can already smell the fragrance outside of the vial i'm like you know you don't need to put that much on it's like um t-rex tyrannosaurus rex from zoologist or um Iron Duke from Beaufort, London. Like, those, you can smell them outside the freaking vial. Like, mm-hmm. you don't maybe need to go quite so hard on it. But most of it, you are not getting an accurate review if you just use that little dabber and kind of, like, swish it across your wrists a couple times. Like, it doesn't, it, you're not getting anything. Yeah, I don't know how you even 
like approach something like that just because there's so little of the perfume on the vial on like the dabber that you're not going to have it's just like not going to be present um i mean at least i don't have that good of a nose Uh, maybe some people are more sensitive and can do that but i certainly can't I mean, like, I, I'm a little bit more sensitive to smells, but that's because I'm prone to scent migraines. So I have to be careful mm-hmm. when I'm trialing things. That's why I always smell from the vial first before I put it on. Because for me, white florals, I have to be very, very careful with. Mm. That, that kind of sharp, soapy note. Right, yeah. That, I really like white florals. That's, that sounds annoying to deal with. Well, it's like bond number nine. You and I have talked about some of our thoughts on bond number nine but bond number nine there are some of those like astoria i'm like i can't i'm just gonna have to go from i will put it on and i'll hold it until i start getting that twinge and then out comes like the bath soap (laughs) where you've got to scrub it (laughs) off irish spring does wonders i have to get some of that because yeah lately i just don't have any like good way of washing off perfume it's not been it's not been a smooth ride (laughs) That Irish Spring works best for me. Um, I'll follow it immediately up with some sanitizer because it's got some alcohol in Mm -hmm. there to finish breaking it up. But that's the thing. If you're new to fragrance, you can't just wash it off with water or regular soap because the chemicals in the fragrance have bonded to your skin. Mm -hmm. So a little chemistry lesson, you have to find something that's going to break up that bond. Otherwise, you know, if you don't have a good fragrance experience, you're going to be stuck with it the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. It's not just liquid that sits on your arm. It it definitely like gets into your skin, and you need to treat it as such when you're washing it off. Yeah. So, little pro tip for all the new people listening who are kind of new on their fragrance journeys: if you have like if you accidentally overspray, or you try something and it just turns on your skin and it becomes like nightmare fuel. Like I have had some of those. I wrote a review on. Um, MFK's Baccarat Rouge 540, the X-Trait. I mean, that was maybe one of the worst fragrance experiences of my life. Uh, like, of my entire life. And that thing did not want to watch off. I even was getting, like, the Irish Spring. I had to crack a Tide Pod open to get that off my skin. (laughs) I'm so glad I've never had anything happen in that realm for me. I was like... I have maybe been turned off of the almond note for forever after this. I even have a couple fragrances I like that have almond in it, but I haven't worn them since the BFK incident. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for me, almond is BR540 incident. I haven't worn them since then, though. Yeah, I I get it. And for me, almond is a really aggressive, one of those notes that kind of rears its head in every perfume it's featured in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just a to have any sort of association with it, it it's just hard to avoid having a negative reaction to almond and to perfume. Yeah, so, like, what's your worst reaction to a perfume? Um, I mean, I have been scared to reopen it um, oh, and wow. smell it again, but <laughs> I had a horrible impression of um, of Fleur de, Fleur de Mal, Fleur de Mal from Jean-Paul Gaultier. And that perfume, to me... Like, I I am familiar with a lot of different powder notes, and a lot of the times I like how they're integrated, but Florida Mall sounds like, smells like a nightmare combination of that sort of baby powder scent with, like, synthetic 
uh, aquatic like cologne notes in it and then just like a mess of florals like everything is going almost everything i don't like is just kind of clashing and the worst parts of those elements were brought out so much in florida mall and i yeah i tried it like twice showed it to friends as a joke and then put it away forever no i know um i tried more than words from serge off the join the club little subline he's got mm-hmm. And I know so many people who love it, but I put that on and it just turned on my skin like burnt methane, like burnt salty methane. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I sent it to Dan. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I have not given him a heads that. up and I know he's not going to listen to this. So when he does get around to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I don't even remember. I'm going to bring up the note here. Do you remember what the, the notes are in more than words? Because I remember it looking pretty interesting. Um, I know ambergris is in there, I, b- I believe. Hold on. Yeah, it's like, it's like oud and some fruits and, uh, yeah, ambergris. It's, it's like all extremely vague on the Fragrantica page. It's like those generalized blank notes, blank notes, blank notes. Yeah, it's... So I don't know if it's even well known. Uh, okay, let's see. We have... Lobdenum... Fruit notes, fruity notes. Then there's just the generic floral notes. Then you have like the specific like oud, um, ambergris, olibanum, and then it's mm-hmm. like oriental notes or spicy notes. Like that's the one thing. Like y'all got to stop calling this stuff oriental. That is not cool to be calling it. <laughs> it's kind of straight up racist. Um, and what do you know? So yeah, it's very vague, but. Th- for me, that oud and that ambergris did not, just did not work. That's so, it's kind of surprising and sad to me because I see that people compare it to uh, Armani Privé Rose d'Araby, which is one of my favorite perfumes ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird because they don't seem to share the same like core except for oud, which in the Armani version, the it's like a very jammy rose. Um, that is definitely the star of the show. So I don't know if you picked up Rose from from more than words. Yeah, I, could, I think that, that so generic floral thing, I think I definitely would say that is Rose. But it is like uh-huh. nuclear version Rose. Mm. Like Rose in a yeah. fragrance can either be very well <laughs> blended or it can just kind of like overshoot everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that we can save that for another episode. Uh, anyways, fragrance wise, so y'all know, not every fragrance is going to be a success, <laughs> as we've demonstrated. <laughs> and if you want to get it off, invest in some Irish Spring, and you know, probably rubbing alcohol, which is hard right now because you know pandemic. But if right. you can get some, um, I did want to move on to a few other topics, though. Like when we talk about sartorial. I think it's really easy for people to kind of get this image in their head of Western culture, white, mm-hmm. waspish, affluent, Stepford right. image, which is unfortunate, but I see a lot of people that kind of just like, that's their idea of sartorial and that's their idea of being very well put together and it gets kind of gatekeepy like especially like Mm -hmm. in watch fandoms or watch communities like you know how it is it's like you've made it if you have a rolex 
Right. But it has it's to be so a tied to status that it's hard to like separate. Yeah, and then it has to be like a certain type of Rolex, and then you can't wear too much gold because then you're gaudy, and then you can't wear <laughs> it. It can't be too big, and I'm just like every different group of people has their own kind of thing that works for them, mm-hmm. and you 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 have the Roly people, and then you've got um. Like, that's great and everything, but it's a Rolex. I'm not saying Rolexes aren't good, but, you know, Patek Philippe (laughs) is going to blow a Rolex out of the water price-wise, for sure, but spec-wise as well. I'm like, it, it. for me, I think the problem with sartorial conceptualization is that it has a chance to be very gatekeepy and exclusionary. Mm -hmm. I think the what I've noticed at least is that you have like yeah those power brands like Rolex that have so much cultural uh, power or at least recognition that they become uh, it becomes not so much about watches or or whatever you're looking at it just becomes about having like filling out a checklist that has been established for you to to be in a certain circle or not um, and for me what's great about all the all the types of uh, objects that would fall under, or, or just hobbies that would fall under sartorial um, as a term, you have a, there's so many people making amazing things um, that don't have as much recognition that usually yeah pat, like surpass these top brands or at least meet them or get close in specs have far more value for what you're paying, and the idea of like being able to knock or dent that establishment is really exciting because it means more people can can find this as a hobby and also they can get more out of it for, regardless of what salary uh, you're, you have to be making and I, that excites me a lot yeah and like you know we said at the beginning that sartorial is about helping you put on your best possible foot to the world and that that's not going to be for everybody oh I got to have that Rolex Submariner and I have to have this very specific suit and I have to wear, you know, Sergeoff, Udin, and, you know, all this other... I have to have the Italian Mm -hmm. bespoke shoes. I'm like, if that works for you, that's great. But that doesn't work for everybody. And the problem comes from we've decided that's what it needs to be across the board. Right. I think the, the idea of bespoke is a really interesting one to bring up. Because I was looking around in places I usually don't on the online for fragrances because I was trying to track down Slumber House, as I told you earlier, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty much out of stock everywhere. And in Harrods online, there's like seven, eight different bespoke options for perfume. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize like there is this world of extreme um, price tags on fragrances because you're literally paying not not just professionals, but high-end professionals to make these things for you. And that's, like, simultaneously the thing I love and hate about um, the current state of what we would think of as, like, a sartorial community is that, number one, like, you can have things literally tailored to your interests that would probably suit you and be creations in their own that are contributions to the art world. And on the other hand, almost no one can do that. So it's just a it's a, it's a dual... And, and to add on to that, there are now a lot of businesses 
um, and I'm trying to remember specific names, but there are a lot of, yeah, there are a lot of houses like that are built on people sending in note lists and preferences and, and being able to create their own fragrance for much, much, much less. Um, and it's just, it's hard to know. Um, it's great to have that option, but it's really hard to know, will you be getting something that is the same level of quality as just going into a department store and finding something you like? Well, yeah, like you've got Roja Dove, um, you know, mm-hmm. Roja Perfumes, like he makes super haram priced. I, I'm the, I could never pay over $1,000 for a fragrance. Like, I'm sorry. That to me that's is just like, that's obscene. But, you know, that's that's on the cheap end of getting a sp- bespoke fragrance from like Roja Dove. Like I know Penhaligans mm-hmm. can do, to an extent, bespoke fragrances that are a little bit more palatable. But they're, like, high, high, high in, like, several hundred thousand dollar experiences of getting this stuff made for you. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's like you said, it's cost prohibitive for most of us. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, you know, with watches, for a lot of us, yeah, you could save up for that Rolex, but you're going to be dropping, you know, if you're wanting a specific model, you're going to be dropping, you know, the down payment for a car (laughs) easy to get it. And you have to look at, you know, utility wise, can I do that? And I think that's where we get into like, we could have an entire episode on like clones and homages Mm -hmm. and the worth on that. You know, like I've talked about homage watches on the site. Um, I'm doing an entire lineup of like, clone versus original comparisons and if I think they're worth it for several different scents but you know part of the reason those exist is because some of these items are just so prohibitively expensive yeah and then and I'm going to say one more thing and then when we do have innovation coming out Again, the gatekeeping comes in because if it's too radically different, like with watches, you know, the Frederick, um, I'm not talking about, Richard Mill, I'm I'm confusing that with Frederick Mollet's fragrance, Uh, the Richard (laughs) Mill watches, everybody loves to mock them, but everybody wants one. Or, like, the even the Invicta watches, everybody loves going on about, they're just so gaudy and oversized. I'm like, I will totally give you like, yes, we should criticize them on those rapid, like, outrageously inflated MSRP prices. But the actual style, like, people enjoy that style, and it's getting them into the community. Like, I'm sorry, y'all, mm-hmm. but horology's a dying breed. It just is. So if it's getting people in this community and they're learning about horology and watchmaking and movements, like, why are we going to knock that? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. There's there's something to be said as well for for these clones and the idea of taking inspiration um, or or just going into a field and starting by replicating the basics. I mean, that's kind of... What's interesting about fragrance is not only is replicating or trying to replicate classics something that is good for anyone as a as a practitioner in a field, but it also has a demand. So why not do the best of both and create fragrances as practice, um, or if you if that's what you intend to do for your career, 
and sell them to people who want to buy them and have a have that opportunity well, to sorry, own something like, that sounds very similar. I, I will for, freely admit I have a clone oil I use, and it's uh, Bodicea the Victorious Hanuman, mm-hmm. and it's because Hanuman is over a thousand dollars per bottle. <laughs> so insane. I'm like, I am never spending this much on this fragrance. I can get for ten bucks. Like a twelve ounce bottle of oil, and I'll be good to go for like over a year. Years. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not paying a thousand dollars for a fragrance. I have my limits, and I know, like, some people would say my personal fragrance collection is bougie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not like I'm still not going to pay over a certain limit that I'm not comfortable on. Like, yeah, I've got Roja, and I have Serge Off, and I have, you know, some other niche fragrances, but that doesn't mean just because you have certain things that, like, oh, yeah, I'll totally go and drop a 1000 or $1,300 on that Roja Dove with the gold flakes just because. And I think it is, like, a dangerous mindset to have that the opposite perception and think well i've already spent like 300 dollars on this one fragrance so nothing else matters <laughs> and just feel like the gates are open um right yeah and that's like i mean i'm sure we'll talk about this sometime in the future but anyone who's been part of a fragrance group sees people who are addicted to buying them they this this whole area is something that can be dangerous uh financially and to keep something in check to say like yeah i have i own this but i'm still going to consider price going forward and i'm Mm -hmm. going to make sure that i'm i'm being logical that's something that i think is extremely important for anyone getting into any part of um this i I don't even know what you call it really yeah the sartorial world exactly I mean, addiction's a real thing. I think part of it is it kind of falls into that retail therapy bit of, like, you get that high when you buy it. Yep. And then you keep having to get that high and that sense of control. Um, You know, and I'm not knocking anybody who likes to go on blind buying sprees at TJ Maxx, but for me, it's (laughs) like, I don't like blind buying because if I don't like the bottle, I'm not going to wear it. Right. And then, you know, yeah, what am I going to do? I'm, I have to hope I can sell it or flip it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm me, not a fragrance a collector. I don't want a big shelf of stuff that's just going to collect dust and I forget I have. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going through my... I have I have two points to say after that. Um, first of all, I'm going through my perfumes. And I started getting into fragrance now, I think it was 2014. And for the first time, I've gone through some of my bottles and smelled some that are relatively old at this point, and they're starting to like lose their quality. It's mm-hmm. just something that naturally happens in fragrance. And they turn. I think I'm yeah. They just turn bad over over time. Uh, light exposure, heat exposure. Yeah. Um, but what's what is really good about that experience is realizing that I didn't. I was relatively picky. Um, even though I was really excited, I got in, I started buying samples, like, like anybody who would, like an early perfume nerd <laughs> in their journey, I did, I did all you, those things. You want all the things. It, it happens to everybody, really. Like, once you get that bug, it's just like, I need everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you feel like you have, like, 
uh, bases to cover. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I need to, I need to have smelled this classic, or I need to have experience with this brand, and I haven't. Um, but what I'm really happy about is that I didn't. I bought like an, an amount that made sense for me that doesn't that has not just all died because it, it will. Like your fragrances are not immortal; they will eventually not do well so having that sort of self-control if you store them properly they will last longer like i had a 20 2009 bottle of burberry sport that i stored immaculately it's still good i sold it Mm -hmm. but i'm like if you if you treat them properly they will and some fragrances are just prone to turning sooner citrus fragrances i'm sorry you got to use that shit up pardon my language yep Um, that's exactly what happened to me bergamot 22 from the Lavo that I got in 2015 and there's still a little bit at the bottom that I'm never going to be able to finish because it turned and I'm so upset that I didn't get to finish wearing that bottle. <laughs> oh, that is definitely a bummer. Yeah, the one I'm, that I noticed that hasn't gone that has aged badly and I think it is one of those bottles that has been around like I've taken it places so the <laughs> your random bouts of heat um, probably have affected it. But yeah, mine was Unhardin Sur Lanil by Hermes that is not doing super hot every, anymore. But like other perfumes I've had that I I keep I tend to keep all of them in their boxes. Um, other perfumes I've had are exactly the same mm-hmm. that as I got them, and it's been five years. So it's, it really is like a it's a thing that depends on what it is and how you treat it. Well, and also. It's not just with, like, fragrances, but, like, with watches. Right. You know, um, I pref- I'm i a big watch fan, but I cut myself off at watches when I reached a certain number. So unless something comes out that I just really, really like, I won't buy another one. Because unlike fragrances, I can only wear one watch at a time. Or, like, right. one watch per day unless I'm, like, going to switch it out before I go do something special at night. Fragrances, I mean, like, I go through four a day, four different applications. Like, right when I wake up, the, uh, was it 4771? Yeah. The German, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like, right when I wake up, that goes on. I'll go get cleaned up, I'll put something else on. If I go to the gym, I put a gym scent on. Then when I get home, I put something else on right before bed. So for me, they're very interactive, and I can be wearing them all throughout the day. Watches, I mean, I love watches. I love them. But I only have so much space, and I can only wear one at a time. And I can't wear it to bed. Yeah. And then you have some watches, like I've got an Omega Seamaster, and I live in L.A., and I'm not going to be wearing that thing out and around very often. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, or like I've got a Tag Heuer that maybe isn't quite as conspicuous, but I'm still like, if I want to wear that one out and around. Right. Yeah, they just have more specific uses and limitations. But it's, you know, it's like other, you know, both of, John and I both, we like fountain pens. And it's like, I would Mm -hmm. love to have a massive collection. But um, how many do I really need? (laughs) Yeah, and how many can you even have before you start, before it feels crowded or overdone? Like, one of the things that I don't like... um, in any and it's like a huge trend now uh maybe two years ago was when we got the tidying uh come special on netflix and all of a sudden minimalism oh, yeah, ownership yeah marie kondo is is like the rage and i've certainly felt that about all sorts of things especially sartorial elements and then like 
me having shirts that I like, but I don't like enough to wear them over something else. Or <laughs> same thing with pants, same thing with perfumes. Um, and this sort of this sort of explosion of availability and how many how much variety you can have in a given field is being combated, I think, in a good way by that other impulse to pare down and get things that you really like um, just to cover what your range of use is for that particular category. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, the danger with becoming a collector is you just, all you care about is growing the collection. And I think that's like, especially in sartorial elements of, you can be a collector to an extent, but I think in the front of your mind, it should always be primarily about, I I want this because I enjoy it. Because the moment it turns into, I just want to collect, it's not so much about your enjoyment of it. It's about, you know, feeding this hungry monster that you never can completely quite fill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because every, every time you're doing it, it's for that very specific temporary high that it has nothing to do with the actual object, but just getting the object. Yeah, I mean, like, and I go through my collection fairly frequently, and I do, like, a really hard look of, like, yeah, am I really going to keep wearing this? Like, I got rid of two this week. One of them came right in. I put it on. I'm like, ah, I don't like this. And I think I actually wound up giving it away to a guy. Um, and then I had another one that was from Dua that was a clone of, like, Memo Russian leather. And I'd sprayed it, and I'm like, eh. mm-hmm. And then I'm just kind of looking at it. I'm like, I have a bottle of Odin tin coming in and I need the space and I'm not wearing this thing. So, you know, can I swap it? Can I sell it? And -hmm. I think that needs to be the mindset of like, if I'm going to get other things in, what do I need to make room for? What am I not using? Unless it's a fountain pen, in which case it's like, um, how how do you quantify that? (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something I'm definitely thinking about. And I'm, yeah, I've like been rolling around and this is, this is something that I think actually has a lot more to do with sartorial stuff than I, than I first time was thinking, but um, the whole animal crossing phase right now, what's mm-hmm. funny is it is a collector's game, but it's one where you can only collect like quote unquote collect 10 villagers. So people are like, have this impulse to go get everything they want. And then there's a limit to that. There, you right. just run out of space, and that's a, just a something that happens. I think in the in the sartorial world where you you have like these ideas of what could be an ideal collection or what would be like an ideal range. I mean, I've done this all the time with with scents where I'm like, okay, I want a scent for every month, or like I want a scent for like every color of the rainbow. It's like a funny fun little activity, um, but what it really does every time is it makes me realize that if I really think hard about the things I have. Um, a lot of this stuff just is a slightly worse version of something else. Um, and there's like a there's like group of very specific things that bring me a lot of happiness that are the ideal in whatever category I'm thinking of. And then the stuff along the way that I have that isn't in that category is usually just the product of me not be not thinking hard enough about what I'm buying or getting mm-hmm. before I get it. Well, like for me, like I had smelled. Um... You know, like, Roja has this line of, like, five colognes that came out that are a little bit more, I say a little bit more, that's relatively speaking, affordably priced. You can find a bottle of a 
you know them for like 235 if you know where to look so that right. relatively cheaper than some of his other stuff but um I love Creation E. I had to get a bottle of it. And then I was like, well, if I get another bottle, what would it be? And then mm-hmm. I got a decant of Elysium. I got a decant of Scandal. I'm like, okay, I'm good. You know, I've got decants. And that's an entirely different beast as well. But I was like, okay, I've got some decants. I don't really need a full bottle. But I'd smell danger. And I'm like, this is so good. I, I think I mm-hmm. think this might be my last big purchase for this year. And then I just so happened... I think it was on Free Grantica or Base Notes, and someone was like, this is basically Guerlain Heritage. And Guerlain <laughs> Heritage is way, way, way cheaper. So I'm like, well, I'll just, I'll I'll risk it and I'll get a bottle of Guerlain. Guerlain Heritage is better. I saved, like, $200. <laughs> and that's the thing, is, like, you have to, especially in sartorial um, elements of, like, always do your research just because you yeah. like something doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best option that's there or just because somebody else is hyping something this is something in fragcom and watch and the horology community like hype beast items yeah yeah and it's like it becomes a new status symbol like you have this so obviously you're going to get all all the other th- supposed things that come along with it and i'm like no, like you know, you see people that get stuff that they don't really like it because it got hyped up and they didn't sample mm-hmm. it or they blind bought it or they thought they needed it and it's just sitting there. Yeah, yeah, and that happened to me with an ex- to an extent with Aventus, mm-hmm. where I I went in, I got to live uh, in Dublin for a bit and. I think it was literally less than a 10-minute walk from where I was living. Was uh, I think it's called... Is it called... Something Brown. I'd have to look it up again. But it's a, a high-end department store in Dublin that carries a lot of really expensive fragrances. Um, and I walked in, and like a maniac, I tried everything <laughs> over the course of, like, two weeks. Mm-hmm. And Aventus... When I smelled it, I had already heard so many things about it. I had already know, known that everyone's like, this is the compliment gutter. Like, you you know, that it has that whole mythology of being the best. Um, if you have a relative, if you haven't looked in a billion different places, like trying to find what what people think is the best fragrance, like, and you just are browsing lists or you're browsing reviews casually... Aventus comes up all the time, and people mm-hmm. say, like, yeah, this is the best fragrance. Whatever. I have so, so I many it. strong, strong thoughts about Aventus that I'm like, <laughs> me as a lady, I cannot say because Aventus bros will come at me, and I am not ready to deal yeah. with it. <laughs> it's it is quite, a, quite a thing of its own. It's if not you're, a, if you're a woman in Fragcom, like, you are so sick of hearing about Creed Aventus. You are so sick of it. It Do you get like asked what you think about it all the time or something or anything like that? I get asked and then I'll give my opinions and then the, like I've had people call me like a bitch. I've had people say I'm lying. <laughs> I've had people being like, "Well, what? I did Yeah, like <laughs> men do not like certain types of men who put all of their identity into this one cologne and think it's going to fix their lives. I I guess I'm just going there anyway and I'll deal with the backlash. Um, 
Like, <laughs> if they find out, it doesn't. Like, women are like, I mean, it's okay. Right. It's not my favorite. I'm, I mean, I would rather wear Mont Blanc Explorer. Right. Like, I just, I prefer that. Or, or even um, Orion by Terenzi. I would rather wear one of those. Like, Aventus doesn't really do it that well for me. I'm like, eh. Mm-hmm. Like, y'all are paying way too much for smelly juice and having batch wars for nothing. Because men like Aventus way more than women do. Yeah, I've I've seen that just from reading reviews. Um, I think the the biggest comment I have on all of that is well, number one, it's it's obvious like that as a as a woman, if you criticize Aventus um, to one of these people who like kind of worships at the altar of Aventus, you're destroying their mythology. That mm-hmm. like the big strength of Aventus is that women like it, <laughs> which is. Which is very funny because there really is there are perfumes that are extremely popular, um, but people are people, and everyone there is no perfume that everyone really really likes that much. Mm-hmm. I have all sorts of perfumes like um, yeah, Amo Wash Interlude, which I just wrote a review on, and I think is incredible. Uh, I that was our first almost... five star rating across the board, by the way. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I think it deserves. I I don't have you been able to smell it. I that is one of the few from that house I have not smelled. Like I've got like Journeyman and Reflection Man, and I've got a couple of decants from Scentbird coming in for mm-hmm. next month that are like uh, for women, but I haven't yeah, smelled it. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I actually am, I'm super interested in Amalaj's, uh fragrances for women because I feel like they make. It is interesting to me that they make, like, gendered sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's, like, maybe too big of a institution for them to stop at this point, maybe. But for me, their fragrances are so bold and creative that they almost never register to me as, as traditionally masculine or feminine. But what's interesting about Interlude, in, and the reason I brought it up in the first place, is that it is, like, a smoke, leather, labdanum, I think... Uh, myrrh, uh, just like a bomb of like a ton of mid notes that are extremely heavy and bold. And this is not the sort of thing that it's the sort of thing like if you look at it objectively as like I want a piece of art, I want something that is complex and dense and and like kind of will blow me away. All of that might happen with with Interlude Man, but we'll, what will not happen is you go around and get a bunch of compliments from random people. Like it right. just it's so it's different it's heavy it's not like your general clean scent that people are going to be drawn to so the type of hype behind something like interlude as a piece of art is completely different than the type of hype behind a different fragrance for being a compliment getter yeah and like the freshies like um like you know explore mm-hmm. or um i'm not giving Dewar credit because of that entirely super racist Johnny Depp campaign for that particular fragrance that I'm not giving them credit for. Uh, Guerlain. Guerlain has um, Ideal um, Yope even, I guess, if you if we want to go a little old school. like right. There's a lot of fresh scents that tend to do well here. Uh, you know, uh, the United States, for many different reasons, also just tends to gravitate towards the fresher, cleaner scents. But 
you know, it would be like with me, I eventually do want to get my hands on a bottle of Iron Duke from, you know, Beaufort, mm-hmm. London. But I'm like, that's an art investment, and that is not something right. I'm going to subject a ton of other people to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because fragrance is invasive. Like, when you decide to when you decide to wear it, it's not like you're just wearing a t-shirt that someone can, like, look away from. Like, if yeah. you pass by someone with a fragrance, they will smell it, unless you've applied it so light, like, so lightly that they'd have to be, like, hugging you or something. Yeah, so it's a, it, to, unless it's, it's dragged down to just skin level, like, uh, mm-hmm. you, you have to understand, watches, people can look away from. Suits, people mm-hmm. can look away from. Fragrance is very interactive, and if you're that kind of asshole that's going to walk in and make somebody smell dying animal... Or worse, like, give them a scent migraine. Like, you yeah. deserve to be the guy or the woman in the office that nobody wants to be around. Like, yeah. read the room. It's, yeah, what's so, again, what's so odd, like, and this has so much to do with masculinity and perfume um, in general. And there's way too much to dig in uh, to really get started on that. But the the whole mentality of, that makes people generally attractive would be confidence, presence, charisma. And fragrance is like a backdrop Mm -hmm. because if you don't, if you don't make it the backdrop, if it's what you're relying on, um, then you're not going to be focused enough on other elements of your person that are going to make you attractive. And I think that's that's something that's just basic. All these other sartorial components that we talk about, like tailoring, like you can't just rely on having a good suit if you have no personality and you're a jerk. You can't rely Mm -hmm. on a watch or a fragrance or shoes if you don't have, you know, the part about you that you've worked on to back it up. Now, all of these things are nice elements and they can help you feel more confident to put that best foot forward. But I mean, if you're a jerk and you don't do any work on yourself and you're a toxic person and you don't listen to other people, then it doesn't matter if you bathe in in Aventus. Actually, that's probably going to do more harm than good. But it doesn't matter if you've got like Roja Dove and the finest London tailored bespoke suit and the Italian bespoke shoes and a pedic Philippe on it doesn't matter if you have all of that in the end because you're still going to be that jerk yeah and i think it it is a yeah it's completely a double-edged sword because i remember i remember the first time i wore chanel fragrance that i bought which is just the basic blue de chanel mm-hmm. when i when i started out and i wore it and i felt great <laughs> like i was just like I felt like a rock star when I was wearing it. Um, and b- that perfume also tends to get compliments. So yeah, I get, I kind of did get uh, that weirdly ideal marketed experience mm-hmm. that a lot of these people do when they are selling perfume. But it was, first and foremost, it was because it was something, that fragrance happened to be one that I really liked and still really like. the Especially the Eau de Parfum version, I think is excellent. Right. But it, if I had gone if I had gone around wearing it, and this is, I think what happened a little bit with Aventus, if I'm remembering correctly, when I wore Aventus, like, and I didn't get confidence and no one talked about my fragrance, I was like, that was not a good experience. And it wasn't a good experience because the fragrance wasn't working. It's because I was thinking about it in the completely the wrong way. Right. It's like, I'm not wearing something because I want to get compliments. I wear it because it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it's... And it, it can. Yeah, it's that part, it's that sartorial armor. You know, if I'm going out somewhere and I want to put my best foot forward, then, yeah, maybe that Omega's going to come out. Maybe I'm going to dress up and I'm going to be cracking out a surge off or, you know, a Roja or another one of whatever I have. Whatever makes me feel powerful or makes me feel good for the situation. That's what that sartorial, all those little sartorial elements should do. They should add to you feeling empowered on yourself not be the power right and that there's yeah for me the sartorial element uh, has one thing that's really important about it that's hard that's important and that is that it is expensive um a lot of these a lot of these high quality objects whether they're, they're watches pens suits uh perfumes all these cost money and there is a huge balance between getting something that you know is going to be like good value and inexpensive Versus investing in something that you legitimately think you will get down the road, or like mm-hmm. waiting and saving for that, and that's a huge that's a huge thing that's difficult to explain or even try to guide someone who's new to these objects. And like, you want to give them, it, you might have a price point in mind, but it might always be worth going up or down um, in the long run for that, not to make sure you're not just getting like a starter kit but you're starting to build something more long-term that you actually will value and not end up replacing and just And that's something you and I have joked about, like especially for guys in, fra- in the fragrance community. It's like when you see guys who have been collecting for like, everybody gets in it on your own speed, but there's like a fragrance starter kit that mm-hmm. every guy gets. And then they right. start kind of branching out and deciding what they actually really like. And then you, you can tell who is kind of getting into it's the same thing with watches you want to go out you want to buy all these cheap watches but they look kind of cool so you want them and they're Mm -hmm. just stuff that you think you need versus watches i actually wanted like i've got a ton of invicta watches i'll i'll admit it i I think they're cool as hell but they're watches that i specifically really really like because i have wonder woman and captain marvel watches that i just think are really freaking cool (laughs) And yeah. they're fun when I go out, and I actually get complimented on those watches almost every time I go out because mm-hmm. they're interesting pieces. Yes, I know a lot of people in Watchcom, the watch community, are like they're just gaudy and tacky, and I'm like, yeah, well, the average person thinks they're neat. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, go ahead, go. Ahead. But I mean, it's like it's. It can be very, very tempting when you're new to the hobby to go out and just buy everything that seems bright and shiny or that, oh, a bunch of these are in my price point. It's like, well, keep in mind, there's that 2200-something Omega if you can get it at a really good price or that, you know, it's going to last you the rest of your life and you can hand down to somebody else or you can get, like, seven or eight cheaper watches that you're kind of like, eh, and then you're stuck with and you're, you know, a year or two down the line, you're trying to sell because they're just, like, not that big to you. Yeah. They're, everything you get, especially in this in this category, you your relationship starts with, with that object usually when you buy it. Like, you, you have... It's like going on a first date. Mm-hmm. And then deciding you want to marry someone, it would be like the equivalent of going into and and deciding you like something and then just getting it. And that's I think that's why I really like 
um, the whole process of sampling perfume. Because if you get a decent sized sample, um, then you can spend a lot more time with it over and then decide. And that sort of like testing period offers more insight as into, is this something in five years I'll pick up and be like, wow, I'm really glad I got this. I've, I've had so much mileage. And that's the same thing with, that's definitely the same thing with several of these categories too. Just, I think it might be easier. It's usually easier with like a suit or with a, uh, a pair of shoes or a watch to, well, maybe not a watch. I'm, I'm undecided about that. <laughs> it's, it's usually easier to go in and see exactly how something will fit on you, especially if you know your body is done growing. And you're like, okay, this is going to be the same for me for pretty much the entire time I'm going to own it. But it is something that you want to keep in mind. Like these, these purchases ideally are semi-permanent. Like it's something that you are going to spend a lot of time on. You don't want to buy something that you're going to like for two days. Yeah, and if you're in a flux period, like I went through a flux period about three years ago. I was like shape-wise and, you know, looked it, and then I hardcore committed to the gym. So for me, when I buy clothes right now, I still know I'm kind of in a flux period. Like the amount of tailoring I need on shirts because my shoulders are so big compared to where they were. I can't wear, like, I would normally be a small in a shirt, but I can't wear a small in a shirt because my shoulders are too big. So this is why mm-hmm. where, like, tailoring comes in, you know. It's, you, you have to, like John was saying, you have to look at it as an investment, Right. Yeah. It's funny because my my body and my body type has not changed for I don't even know how many years. And people are like, people are like it is it's eventually it's eventually going to be the point where you can't just eat like anything. It will happen. I promise you, you will get there. And then that's when you're like you spend a few years feeling miserable. And then either you just like, well, OK, this is my life now where I want to do something about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not exactly looking forward to that, but we'll we'll see it when it comes. But um, so yeah, this has kind of just been an intro into what we think sartorial is, and I know we were a little bit all over the place, but hopefully you kind of got an idea on the types of things we want to talk about, and we're planning to have quite a few guests from all across the board because it shouldn't just be what we think sartorial is. Everybody has their own different style and like different notes that they love or different watches that they love and you know we want this to kind of be a reflection of you guys of you know you're not gonna like exactly what I like or exactly what John likes and that's okay we just want you to be able to have a wide variety of people to listen to to maybe kind of hone in on what you know quote unquote what does bring you joy Right. And just having a, I think one of the best things for me when I was getting into uh, fragrance, and I talk about fragrance mostly because the other things I I like, and I like a lot, but I just don't focus as much on. But one of the things that I was really happy to have when I was getting into fragrance was uh, some people in like the base notes community on the forums that would, that I could actually just chat and message and ask specific questions um, mm-hmm. about, I like this. I have interest in this. Where should I start? And I, I hopefully, hopefully, we'll be able to form some sort of foundation or that resource for people as well. So yeah, that's pretty much what we're doing with this show. Thank you guys for tuning into the first episode. Again, we have several guests planned, and they are a just from across the spectrum. We think variety is great. We think diversity is great. No one person is going to like exactly what 
everybody else is liking, nor should you. So we're really just trying to give you a platform to be exposed to new things or even just kind of re-examine, you know, especially like John was saying, like, is this something I still use? Do I really need this? You know, and if the answer is no, then, you know, Marie Kondo your life in that area. (laughs) (laughs) So we will be back with some interviews. Uh, Thank you guys for tuning in. If you have anything in specific you'd like to ask us or maybe have us touch on, feel free to leave us a comment on the article that we post this in, and we will try to make that happen to you. Don't forget, we have other podcast shows on the Fundamentals Network. That includes Ladies First, That's Haram, Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. We have Unabashed Book Snobbery and the Fundamental is still kicking around. And then we also have a weekly um, RPG live play show, uh, Faith Forge Academy, is every Friday. So make sure you check them out as well. Thank you guys for tuning in. John, do you have any last words? Um, no. Just to have, have a wonderful uh, day wherever you happen to be listening. Yep, that's it. <laughs> All right, and that's that. Y'all take... Uh, well, there we go. I ruined our perfect ending. That's <laughs> that. You guys stay safe. Make sure you're wearing a mask. <laughs> Indeed.